Thank you, Pete. And thank you for the nice touch there of people leaving when I stand up to speak. It makes me feel at home. <laughs> it's grand to be with you. Big subject, the glory of God. So without any further ado, we need to crack on, don't we? The great watch cry of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we're going to first look at what we mean by the glory of God. And the first thing that we learn is that there is one God. And all of the gods are fakes. They're unreal. They're phantoms. But the one true God is the one that we are focusing on together. And the Bible is insistent. There is only one God. There is a unity within this God, yet we're in the first chapter of the Bible, just a few verses into the Bible, and we read God saying, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And immediately we have God, the one God, speaking in the plural. And as we go through scripture, we have through his revelation, through him telling us about himself, we come to the understanding that the Father is fully God. That the Son is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. And they are distinct. Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Father. There is a distinction there. But yet, there is one God. And immediately... We bow our heads and we see that our puny minds, our understanding before such an awesome God, and so we are filled now with the expectation that we're going to start learning about God, but we're going to have to keep learning right through this lifetime, and I believe right through heaven the glory of God will be displayed in its absolute greatness. And the first thing I want us to get hold of is the vastness, the immensity of God, that we are looking at God, and it's not that we can't know him, we can know God, but he's so great, he gently reveals himself a little at a time. So as we go through scripture, we find things out about him. We find out that he knows everything. He knows what's in your thoughts now. He knows the number of hairs upon your head. He knows the intentions that you have in your heart. Do you ever, like me, just occasionally say, I don't know why I did that. Or I don't know why I said that. Well, God does. Because he knows every inner working of our heart. So we can't fool him. So immediately in the presence of God, we say, please, Lord, let's be honest before you. Because he is all-knowing. And he's all-knowing eternally. He's not increasing in knowledge because there is no knowledge outside of him. He's not decreasing in knowledge because he is the eternal one with no beginning and no end. And he's unchanging the same yesterday, today, and forever and he's infinite in his knowledge. It has no limits. It has no capacity. It has no boundaries. And what we learn about his knowledge, we recognize is true also of his eternal power, 
that he's not gaining in power, he's not diminishing power, is the same, always the same, uh, not increasing nor decreasing in these things, and his power is infinite. He does whatever pleases him in heaven and on earth. And we see that he's everywhere present, so there's nowhere we can go to hide from him. He's here. He's especially here because we are met in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he said he would especially be present when we meet specifically for the purpose to which we have done today. And so there is no place we can go where God is not. He fills all in all. And then the characteristics of God, his attributes, when we learn about what God is like, then we see his holiness and his purity and his righteousness, that he is light in whom there is no darkness at all, no spot, no blemish, utter and absolute perfection. And we see his kindness and we see his grace and his mercy, that free, unmerited favor that he shows towards human beings. And we look at these characteristics and we see that saturated through all of these characteristics is love because God is love. And so it's not a case of one characteristic of God playing off against another because love seeps through everything, including his righteousness and his justice and his wrath because God is love. And we say, Lord, who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness and fearful in praises. No wonder, no wonder that the scripture tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That deep, deep respect for the living God. Now, this is what we mean by the glory of God. He is glorious in and of himself. Every aspect of God that we look at, that it's the same conclusion. He is glorious. But when we look at this subject of what do we mean by the glory of God, we see in Scripture that specifically it's when we as human beings, we see and we perceive something of his being. It's tangible through faith. We see, we understand the penny drops, it sinks in. There is that glimmer that we see something of God's being and we see something of his purposes, of the workings of God, of his intentions, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's bringing about, which all speak of his being. So those two things, the being of God and also his purposes, and that's what we'll be dwelling on, God willing, over the next couple of days. So we see this great God and this word glory, it's the word we use of God himself and of what we perceive of God and his purposes. Now, the root idea of glory, and this was a surprise to me. You might have known this for years, I don't know. But I remember as a young Christian thinking, have I got that right? And rereading it. Because the root idea of glory is weightiness. So it's a weight as opposed to something that's light. So where this word comes from, 
the glory of God is someone of substance. Someone where we can see the splendor and the honor and there is a worthiness as opposed to a lightness. A frivolity, if you like, a bit of froth. John Arlott was a cricket commentator in England for many years. Some will remember him with affection, others won't have a clue who he is. He died years ago, but John Arlott, he said a few interesting things. I like to listen to John Arlott. And one of the things he once said was, we take life too lightly and sport too seriously. It's true, isn't it? I appreciate I'm speaking to a Scouser church, so you know it's true. And so it's something that we're aware of in our society. People live off trivia, don't they? You know, what's on the news? And people go to the news to find out, I don't know, who's just been ejected from Strictly or something. And, uh, and things that, for them, are very important. And, uh, and so we live in this world of trivia. We live in Howarth, and Howarth reminds me sometimes of some kind of Disney playground because it's rooted in the 1850s, and people walk up the street, you know, humming the old brass band tune, you know, and they like to drink in the atmosphere of 1850s, and it's just an escapism, and that's just fairly typical of the society that we live in. There's this escapism. Now, focus on God. And we're focusing on something that carries weight with it, carries substance, carries relevance, something that's absolutely worthwhile for this life and into eternity. It's something that's wonderful. And the fact that we can meet here and want to meet here and consider God and contemplate God and meditate upon God and see what he's saying to us in his word is such a wonderful blessing. And of course, everything else then, fades into the rightful place of an insignificance, really. And so it carries with it this idea of weightiness. And what the Lord does, he very gently reveals his greatness and his being to us. And he does so very gently. Some of you might have known Werner Wright a lot of years ago. He was a professor at Leeds, uh, now in glory, and I didn't know Werner Wright uh, personally, but he was a world-renowned professor. Rheumatology was his subject. Went all over the world lecturing and so on and worked at the hospital in, in Leeds. And I only ever saw him once, and it was a touching moment because he did a lot of beach mission, did Werner. And I saw him actually lay, lying down on the beach, belly down, full length, uh, just leaning his head against his hand so that it was eye level with a little lad about that eye. And he was telling him about Jesus. And it really touched me because this guy, oh, you know, I mean, the stuff that he did, Werner, and here he is just talking to this little lad about Jesus. And it was so Christ-like because that's what the Lord Jesus does. Gently takes us to one side. Doesn't baffle us with science, but just tells us in ways that we can understand. Just breaks the, the bread of life small so that we can take it in and begin to enjoy feeding upon spiritual food. Well, that's what the Lord does with us all our lives. And it's what he does in scripture. And it's what he does in scripture when he's revealing his glory. So you have, let's take an example of Moses. 
minding his, his own business in the desert, when he sees a bush and it's on fire. There's flames there. So he goes over because the bush is not being consumed. It's not being burned. And so he approaches the bush and he's brought to realize this is a manifestation of the living God. Because the first words he hears is, take off your shoes. This is holy, holy ground that you stand on. And God makes it known that he's separate, he's holy. He's not in any way remotely like a sinful human being like Moses. Moses, show that respect and honor who it is that's manifest, manifesting himself before you. And so God manifests himself through his presence and always through his word and introduces himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the great I am, that I am. I am that I am, the word that Jesus took to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so God reveals his glory to Moses. And then we see other examples with the similar characteristics. The tabernacle in the desert, there in the center of the camp, which was there symbolic of the presence of God. God manifesting himself with a pillar and uh, with a pillar of fire and a cloud. And where God speaks. And later on the temple with the Shekinah glory. Again, the place symbolizing the presence of God. So that everybody might know that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob takes up his dwelling place amongst his people, always knowing that you can't contain God in a building, but nevertheless for the Lord to say, when you pray, pray towards the temple, because there we expect God to speak. So there are these characteristics, the manifestation of God, God's spoken word, and a presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. A presence then into the New Testament, and the angels appear in great light, a manifestation, announcing unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then, of course, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward all people, but we have the angels there in this great light as the glory of the Lord shone around them. And we have, as it were, the shafts of light from the one who is the light and we see God revealing himself and his purposes and it all redounds to God having all the glory and then we have the Lord Jesus himself the exact representation of God the very image of God and the Lord Jesus comes and he was able to say to Philip, when Philip said, just show us the Father, that will satisfy us. And the Lord has to say, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you don't get it, don't understand. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so it is that the Word who was with God in the beginning, the Word who is God, was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen the only begotten Son. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one 
full of grace and truth. You see what they saw? They saw his glory. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, again, as they see God's glory, there is the manifestation. His clothes become dazzling white. And there is a voice from heaven that says, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And we see the presence of God overwhelming for all of them. And so the Lord very gently, we thank God for this, just little by little shows us something of his glory so that we can see a little more and a little more. And that's why we read from Colossians. Because in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15, you can turn to it with me if you like. You appreciate that we're doing a topic, okay, for the next couple of days. So I'm not expounding just one passage of scripture, which frankly is my comfort zone. I'm happy as a sky. How can I do that? Because a topic we're just drawing from all over the Bible. But we will be dipping into passages, and this is one of them. Because we read in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, not meaning that he had a beginning. That's not what it's teaching. It's teaching that the Lord Jesus inherits all the rights. So in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see this complete unity that they dwell in eternity, always in that unity, never ever think, I wonder what God did before he made everything. It must have been boring. No, no, no. no, Nothing. No boring things at all. God in his unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the characteristics of God interactive within uh, the being, the one being of the Godhead. And we have uh, here this teaching that in, in their interaction in the Godhead, then it was the Father's desire that the Son should have all the first rights, as it were, as we know it, as the firstborn. And so he's the firstborn over all creation. For God, down in verse 19, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What does that mean? All the fullness of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody's expressed it like this, that every shaft of divine light is seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank God for the Wesley brothers, for the preaching, for the hymn writing. One of my favorite hymns is, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood? It's great, and it genuinely is one of my favorite hymns. But this is the difference between hymnology and scripture. Scripture's infallible. Hymnology isn't. <laughs> Neither is preaching. You've got to test these things to make sure that they're so. And so, when he writes in that hymn, he emptied himself of all but love. We know what he means. And we, yeah, yeah, I know what you're getting at there. But, ooh, steady, Charlie, steady. Because, actually, the Bible says all the fullness, all the fullness of God, is in Jesus. He didn't leave his righteousness. Didn't leave his wrath at home. Didn't leave it in heaven. Didn't come down and say, I'll reveal one aspect of my father to these people. But he came revealing the fullness of God. Every attribute, every characteristic, everything about God 
then can be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, it is told us here, is the creator. Verse 16, by him all things were created. Invisible, visible, things in heaven, things on earth. Every single thing was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. It sustains everything. By him all things consist. Everything's held together through the ongoing power of the Lord Jesus. He didn't just wind us up, did he, and set us off and then occasionally pop in and see how we're doing. But the very breath that we breathe now, the very function of every single item in our bodies, the way our minds function, the breath, uh, the air that we breathe, everything is an ongoing mercy of God. That's why his mercies are new every morning. Because it's an ongoing sustaining power. So every mercy is new every single day. <clears throat> and then have a look at the latter part of verse 16. Because we have here a verse which tells us <coughs> something amazingly important. All things were created by him and for him. I was once driving past Lister Park in Bradford years ago. And I couldn't help but noticing in the park there were, I guess, about 20 cardinals playing leapfrog. You know the game. One bends down and somebody jumps over them, hands on the back, jumps over them. 20 cardinals. It's very rare you see children playing leapfrog, let alone adults, but cardinals, unheard of. Pulled the car over, went into Lister Park, and it was, of course, a film set. So I watched these cardinals playing leapfrog for a while, and I noticed somebody had something to do with the film, so at the end, he was by himself, I went, said, do you mind me asking, what are you making? He said, we're making a film. It's the Monty Python team making a film called The Meaning of Life. Well, that's irresistible to a Christian, isn't it? <laughs> you know it's going to be cheesy, but you just can't resist it. So I did. I looked him in the eye and said, have you found it? Well, he looked back at me with such a look of utter contempt and disgust. <laughs> I couldn't describe it to you. And he said, it's a joke. Turned his back and walked away. And I thought, oh, Lord, thank you for your providence. This is priceless this is such a comment on our society because we have this team of comedians making a film called the meaning of life as a joke because it is so preposterous it is so utterly ridiculous so fantastically mad for anybody to begin to presume even to ask the question let alone to come up with any answers of the meaning of life. Because we live in a society where everything's random. People even explain how we got, got here as complete chance and random. So the idea that there's any purpose in life is just looked upon as, well, that's just crazy talk by the society that we live in. But look, we're ordinary folk, aren't we? But look, there is a meaning to life. All things were created by him and for him. Christians have known this. Christians do know this. We even summarize it in our catechisms and so on. What's the chief end of man? What's the purpose of man? Well, it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we know? Because he has revealed to us the purpose 
of existence. That everything was made through Jesus Christ and it was made for his glory. And in a nutshell, what's wrong with this world is we want it to be as God. That was the first temptation, wasn't it? You take of the fruit of that tree, you know. Oh, your eyes will be opened because you will be as God is, knowing both good and evil. Well, that was too much for Adam and Eve. Oh, yeah, we'll go for that one. And so they stopped trusting God and they stopped trusting God's purposes for them because he created us so that we can have full and total and absolute satisfaction and fulfillment in the role that God has made us for as the creature towards the creator, the son against the father in relationship with him. I don't know. Human beings, through their pride, <coughs> want to be as God is. And that's the source of all our problems, isn't it? And here is a verse that tells us <coughs> the meaning of life. So, when we ask the question then, what do we mean by the glory of God? Uh, we, we have some answers, we have some ideas of what is meant. And we, like Moses then, we pray, as Moses did in Exodus 33, verse 18, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, when we have a glimpse of you, we desire to know more of you. And it's this appetite. And God gives us an appetite. We thank God for it because we've lived, some of us, many years of our lives without such an appetite. And we know it's a work of the Holy Spirit. I think the New Testament equivalent showing us this appetite that we need, an increasing appetite for the glory of God, can be found in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Now, the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and so on. The Lord is describing what a Christian is. Some people look at that section of Scripture, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, and see it as a sort of Christian manifesto. You know, oh, I must try to be more like that, because people like that are blessed. So I'll try my best to be poor in spirit, and to mourn, and hunger, and thirst after righteousness, but it's not a manifesto. It's not something that we're aspiring to. It's something that God creates. It's the description of a Christian. So when we read, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's speaking about those who know that we bankrupt before God. How do we know? God has taught us. He's given us a view of his righteousness, and the Holy Spirit has convicted us of our sin, and we are so thankful that God convinces us of our sin. If the Lord is at work amongst us this morning, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. We will feel before such a holy God, we will feel those corruptions in our own heart and know that our righteousness is as filthy rags. <laughs> and we are made aware of how bankrupt we are before God. And that makes us mourn over our sin. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are meek towards others because we realize uh, that we're not really the big I am's. We're not really as good as we thought we were because God the Holy Spirit has revealed our sin. And I'm so thankful that he's done it that way around. Can you imagine how awful it would be if he chose one of you and said, Mick Lockwood needs to know his sin, so I'm going to tell you all the corruptions of his heart, and it's your job to go and tell him all about it. Can you imagine that? 
if, if uh, God revealed to me something of your sins, but he doesn't, he convicts us of our own personal sin. Now, what that actually means is when the Bible says prefer one another, then he gives us grace to prepare, prefer one another because we know the corruption of our heart. We can see the extent of it. We can't see the extent of another's. Okay? So you might see the tip of my sin, but you don't know the depth of it. But you know the depth of your sin. And so we can never think of ourselves as superior to anybody else because the Holy Spirit's convinced us of our sin. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And when you're in that condition, what do you do? Well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a hunger there. There's a real desire there. That's the equivalent of Moses' design. Show us your glory. It's significant that we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness because that's what we need. If you're not saved this morning, that's what you need. You need the righteousness of God. And when we are saved, we know that that's very, very precious. And we know that that righteousness, which we're completely dependent upon, is a gift from God, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. And this righteousness from God comes through faith. And so we have this hunger, this thirsting for the glory of God. Pray God that he will do this with us this weekend, that tasting the glory of God makes us want more. But lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, we learn that we are not actually mere spectators of God's glory, but we are participants. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are being transformed into his likeness. So the Spirit dwells within us, and the fruit of the Spirit begins to make its presence felt. That fruit is seen. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We see Christ being formed in each other. Now, we know we're not what we ought to be, but brethren, we're not what we were. And that's the point, that he is transforming us, and we are now participants in the glory of God. God's glory can be seen in your lives because we can see what the Lord is doing, which reflects his character and which reflects his purposes. Because we were once dead in trespass and in sin. We were once rebels. We were once hell-deserving. No question about it. Absolute out-and-out rebels against the living God. And what does he do? He saves us. He grants to us a new birth by the Holy Spirit. He causes us to know our sin. He causes us to recognize that we're bankrupt before him and poor in spirit, so we mourn over our sin. He makes us meek and recognize, we recognize that we're not the bee's knees, but actually we're sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior. And he causes us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the work of God to do what? 
to bring glory to his name so we can see something of the extent of his love, something of the extent of his mercy and his grace. That is why, by the way, why he calls sinners to preach the gospel. He could, of course, have called, caused angels to preach the gospel. If angels preach the gospel, all the grammar would be perfect and correct. They won't make up words like I sometimes do when I'm preaching. Every fact will be totally and absolutely for sure. No error in the preaching. They won't even have to have a glass of water while they had a cough. Angels would do it fantastically. But God didn't choose them and he tells us why. Because you and me, we are sinners. And we've been saved. And we have experienced something that even the angels can't get their heads around. Because we who are hell deserving, God rescues us, gives us new life, adopts us as his children, grants to us his spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, prepares a place in heaven for us, and he guides us and is with us all through life. And this is absolutely astounding to the whole of heaven that how could God set his love upon these people who were absolutely out against him, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For the unlovely, for the godless, for the rebels. And so that's why it's left to sinners. Because we participate in the glory of God. And God is at work in us. And we know something of his glory. But we have been transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. From, from glory into glory. So it's not like going to a concert and coming to hear a great orchestra, a great band or something, and you're uh, simply in the audience. You're watching what's happening. But with the glory of God, we're in the midst of it because we're his subjects. We are the subjects that God is working with so that his glory can be seen for what it is, the extent of his love, so that we can demonstrate the height, the depth, the length, and the breath of the love of God. And we experience in all our weakness, we experience these glorious things. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that as we gaze upon your glory, we're amazed to find that we're participants. That, Lord, you're changing us from glory into glory so that your great character, your great purposes can be demonstrated through our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sustaining power. Thank you that when we observe your power and read of your power, we can see demonstrated in our lives that now you have given us the gift of faith, that you have granted to us repentance and new life. And we thank you, Father, that everything that we see about you and everything that we see about your purposes is truly wondrous. And so help us, Lord, to trust you. We thank you that we are not required to understand everything about you. But we do know, Father, we are required as children to trust all that you are 
and all that you're doing. So enable us, Lord, to be childlike in our trust. For Jesus' sake, amen.